Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. Good evening, everybody. I have to thank uh, Ken Quiethawk for that wonderful introduction, also for his ad lib at the end, which I think is um, profoundly, typically Ken Quiethawk. If you want to hear more about him or from him or of him, his website is nativestorytellers.com. He is a Native American uh, storyteller, and his CDs are available on his website. His voice is magical. He, trans- he transforms and helps you to transcend into another time when you listen to that voice for, for any length of time. My guest tonight is real. I'm very excited. I have David Collis on with me tonight, and um, he has written a book that... that uh, I, I, I guess everybody has wondered about, but nobody's actually actually written the book, and he did. And he he asked of himself a question: Who really was Jesus of Nazareth? If you could sit down and talk with him, what would you ask, and what would you want to know? David imagined such a scenario and asked such questions to the most notable and enduring figure the world has ever known in his groundbreaking book, interviewing Jesus, the man. David looked into the mythology, legends, and real history surrounding the times of Jesus and was inspired to ask that big question, who is Jesus of Nazareth, really? He was provoked to investigate a vast array of literature and ancient history to find the answer. He focused his creative energies on the life and sayings of Jesus in order to bring a new and fresh insight into the ancient living tradition. He felt compelled to write because he started to see a facet of Jesus' life that was shrouded in obscurity. There's more to his story than the New Testament admits, and he wanted to shine a brilliant white light on that mystery. David vividly portrays the progression of Jesus' life, his actions and sayings within the first century Judean context. His book is a poetic and insightful meditation on Jesus and his considerate reflection on the human journey of divine transformation. It really is a must-read, and it's a must-read for a lot of reasons. 
uh, first of all, nobody ever takes just one source as as an answer to a question. And and the more you can beef up your understanding of a of a character from history, a person from history, such as Jesus, the more you understand where he came from, what influenced him, what inspired him, and how he came to man to be manifest into the person that we all talk about and think about, but don't really know that much about. So I'm going to pull David on. Hi, David. Good evening, Barbara. Good evening. I, lots of questions here, you know, about, about the – this is such an amazing topic, and, and everybody, everybody really kind of just, you know, takes what the Bible has to say, and that's Jesus. And, yeah, yeah there's a whole bunch of missing space in here, but because he was divine, that's the case, and that's not the case. And you, you bring the humanity to the character here to a far greater degree than anything I've ever read read before, and it's a profound um, gift that you have given to humanity with this book. Well, thank you. I felt that um, Jesus is portrayed as an archetype and as a symbol and as the Son of God, and and the idea of a Son of God, we think that is a living reality, but in a sense it's more of a literary term than it is a reality, and that's how I saw it. So I wanted to put that aside, and then I had to ask the questions, you know, deep questions, you know, how did you get uh, to be able to do what you did? How did you, uh, what did you do? What kind of, uh, what kind of teachers did you have? All those types of questions um, came up for me. Well, yeah, and it's so it's so clear that that he was influenced by so many different modalities. That 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 his stories, his parables, his you know, the the things that came out of his mouth that are recorded anyhow in the Bible um, come from so many different um, influences that, that he had to travel, he had to have teachers, tutors, whatever, and, and nothing like that is covered in, in, the, uh, in the Bible at all. No, there's his kind of um, biographical background is very sketchy at best, and so there really wasn't a lot to go on other than just kind of uh, tradition and legend. But what I decided to do was to take his sayings, the ones that, um, from what scholars believe, are the most authentic, and then pull all of those uh, sayings into a big catalog. And then from there, I subdivided each one of those up into various subjects. And from there, I was able to kind of get a glimpse of his personality and some of his character traits. And then from there, I was also able to then pin down where the sources of the influences were. So I feel, um, I kind of feel this is rather uh, exciting. I intuitively explored the idea, what the FBI calls as linguistic forensics. So I put up a big whiteboard, I had all of these sayings, and I went then I just started listening listing all the different types of ideas that I was seeing within these sayings because within the sayings are Jesus's true personality so thank you for the New Testament writers for preserving <laughs> his sayings because it took somebody like me to look at him from a completely uh, new light 
So. Well, it's, it, I just you know I I don't have a, you know a, a a biblical background the way I would like to have, but but from what I understand, most of what is written in the New Testament happened you know forty years plus after his passing. The first gospel that was written was Mark, and he seemed mm-hmm. to have written that somewhere around the year seventy. We're looking at roughly you know, uh, 40 years after Jesus' death. So within 40 years, a great deal has transpired within Judea. And part of what we're seeing within the, uh, <clears throat> within the, the context of that particular gospel are the social conditions, not necessarily what Jesus was facing, although there are some of those, but also the social conditions that the Christians were facing. And that's well, the big you know- key. I think what 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 most people don't understand, and and you know, of course, I don't have it on, on great authority either. But but during his lifetime, he did not appear to be trying to create a new religion. He he appeared to be trying to bring love, compassion, sharing. He he tried to he was trying to bring a greater sense of of love into um, a, a religion that, that was very strict, very harsh. And during a time when, when the, the Jewish people were going through a very difficult time, and it wasn't his intent to create a religion. No, I his intent think. was to, his intent, there were several different um, ideas and Practices that Jesus was interested in introducing that went against the grain of his society. So one was the kingdom of heaven. Another Mm -hmm. one was the father. The other one was the practice of an eye for an eye. So he said, no, what we need to be doing is forgiving. And um, he introduced um, more of a a teaching philosophy that went out to the people. So that was a kind of a new practice, as opposed to staying within a synagogue or staying within the temple or staying within the Essenes and staying within certain um, you know, institutions. Jesus took mm-hmm. his ministry out to the people in a way that I think was fairly new and fairly fresh. But he did it. As a Jew, and I think, I think one of the things that that, that comes across so so um, strongly in everything that I've re- read, and and from what you're saying, that that he had a ministry. He wasn't trying to create a religion around his philosophies. He was trying to expand upon what was already there. From the way that I look at it, Jesus was trying to introduce new ideas and new practices within his ministry so that people who started to follow him would then pick up those ideas. What mm-hmm. seems to have happened is, and, and I, again, I'm, this is the carpenter in me, so when you ask me to build something, I say, okay, do you want this? This needs to be you know, a two-by-six. This needs to be a shear wall. This needs to have braces. This needs to have studs. This needs to have this amount of concrete. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, right. So I call that nuts and bolts. 
Okay. You can design anything you want, but ultimately somebody has to do the nuts and bolts and put something together, and it has to be engineered. So the question is, is what was Jesus doing, and what were the nuts and bolts of his ministry? Jesus went from town to town and village to village. He talked to people. He healed people. He fed people. He encouraged people. He spoke to people. He reprimanded people. He encountered people who were hostile to him. The question question that I had was, what happened to all those people that he touched, that he went to, at each one of those villages and towns and cities? Where did they go? Did every single one of them follow him? Or did people do their kind of their daily life and live their daily life inside that city, but they were still affected by what he was saying? So after Jesus' death, my feeling was is that his disciples kind of went around and went back to some of those people that he talked to. I mean, that would make sense. Oh, yeah. And he, he, had, he said, I think at one place in your book, he had 12 disciples, and then in, at another time he had 70, that the crowds were either very small or very large, that, that it wasn't, it wasn't um, you know, the the picture sometimes that we get from the Bible that the the crowds got bigger and bigger and bigger as his ministry you know increased and increased and increased and you I think what what I love so much about your book is um, you show more the human side of him and and you know that's something that that so many people kind of um, don't don't remember was there he he was born of woman he is is was human he had human um you know he he had a human childhood he he didn't you know there wasn't a halo around his head from the time of birth he had to struggle to get to the place where he had a ministry and um i i think that one of the things that so many people just don't grasp it you know they they kind of think well john the baptist baptized him and then he took off and he became the messiah um that's not exactly the way it happened. And and even in the Bible, it's not how it happened. Um, Jesus, we are so, in, his life is so ingrained theologically that we have no way of understanding what takes place to be able to accomplish a ministry that he accomplished. So we just think that, oh, well, one day when it was time, when he's 30, oh, he said, hey, everybody, when he's with his family, I think I'm going to go out on a ministry. Gee, how did you train for it? What kind of ideas did you learn from it? Oh, I think I'll just learn it on the job. I, that doesn't happen. It just it didn't happen that way. That would be like me going to the seventh game of the World Series watching the Dodgers play, and it's not, you know, until in the ninth inning, and there's two outs with bases loaded, and the, the Dodger manager looks up into the stands and he goes, hey, David, why don't you come down here and hit the ball and see if we can hit a grand slam and win the game? That would never yeah. happen, and that's what happened with Jesus. He's like the MVP of baseball well, how do you get to be an MVP? It's not just because you're born good. You have to train. You have to play the game. You have to do a lot to get to that point. You have to make an enormous amount of sacrifices. So the question is, is 
What are those sacrifices? What did he do? And if you look at him archetypally, ah, he's the son of God. He was born that way. He had all that wisdom. Okay, hey, there's a lot of people that have a, that are born with certain gifts. I mean, there are children that are four, five, six years old that are talented musicians or mathematicians, etc., mm-hmm. or, or, or artists. Yes, they have natural abilities. And I would imagine Jesus did too. But that doesn't mean that you're a concert pianist just because you can play the piano. There's other things that go along with it. And Jesus went through the same process that everybody has to go through. I think that's what I like so much about your book. First of all, you fill people in on the times and what the Jewish people were going through at that particular point in time. But but you also... Uh, you know the Bible. It 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 basically says he he his father was a carpenter. He helped his father out. He grew and then he had a ministry. But but that's just not the way it happens. And I think the way you have filled in the blanks, I, albeit you know it's it's you know there's no written proof, but it does make great sense. Um, <clears throat> I think what really um, you you brought out in in a lot of the things in in a lot in in the background for a lot of his sayings and things like that the different the different influences the egyptian the um buddha the hindu there are lots of different philosophies that are interwoven in everything that he says and and the fact that um it, it, it's just sort of if I have a phrase that, that that means something to me and I say it over and over and over again, it's because it has a personal meaning and, and, and relevance to me. And a lot of his parables, a lot of his stories were that way too, and the influence for them came from so many different places. He had to have studied, worked, read, somehow gotten the the Essenes. I mean, there are so many different places that, that he, he drew his material from. It didn't come out of whole cloth. It came out of experience. That's absolutely true. If we take Jesus as, um, as Paul in his argument, so you have Adam on one hand and you have Jesus on the other. So Adam brought sin into the world, and Jesus is the one that takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus now is this particular archetype. He's a symbol. He is this sacrificial lamb. One of the things about Adam is that apparently he was preformed. So he has no memories. He has no experiences. He knows nothing, right, other than some instincts. But really, that's, that, that is just, um, you know, that's to me is a fantasy. People all have to grow up. They all have to have good experiences and bad experiences. They all have to kind of be shaped. Now, there's kind of this underlying personality that we all have, but it all is affected by lots and lots of experiences. There are cultural experiences. There's educational experiences. There's athletic experiences. There are, uh, you know, the bullying kind of experiences. There's, you know, the cliquish kind of experiences. There's all of that. So then when we jump over to Jesus, are we supposed to say that he's preformed? Just like Adam no. is, and that's where I went. Okay, there's, there's no, I don't see any reality to that whatsoever. Makes a good story. It was very helpful for that time, but for me, it doesn't make any sense. So I looked at it from um, not like kind of in the mythic uh, sense of uh, C.G. Young and the archetypes. I looked at him from the perspective of. Um, Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. What does somebody have to do to be able to 
literally conduct a ministry of which it's now going to be um, in contrast to the way in which your society is operating. Mm-hmm. So something, you know, in the hero's journey, the hero goes away and then comes back. And because he's come back, he's there's all those things that happen on his journey that provide him with all the insights so that he can come back to his society and say, hey, these are the things that we need to do. We have a Native American culture as a shaman. You know, he's somewhat set apart from the society so that he can have all of experiences. But ultimately, he is the one that helps the society heal and grow and move on. And Jesus acted a little bit like that. He saw there was a lot of problems within his particular social structure, and he wanted to deal with it, and he looked at his ministry through the lens of compassion. He also looked Mm -hmm. at it because he also had a new sense of the divine, and that is a teaching that you really don't necessarily find um, um, fleshed out as much in the New Testament as you do in the Gospel of Thomas. So in the Gospel of Thomas, there is a much more profound insight into the divine mind and into the divine realities that Jesus understood. And it's in that particular Gospel that the seeds of his profound insights are still um, contained. Yeah, it's just, um, you know, when when I, as I reflect back on the Bible, they, they, they big deal about he's born and then, 33 years later, he has this ministry, and, and that it's a big gaping hole there. And That's right. That's right. In fact, when you and, get to and, Mark, they don't even have his birth. You get to in the <laughs> Gospel of Mark, Jesus just shows up and says, I'm ready to be baptized. So the question that yeah. I had is, well, if you knew the Father, why would you go to John? Mm-hmm. Why, why, why do you need to be baptized? So now all of a sudden the, bapti- uh, the baptism story started to... Um, unravel for me because the motive for Jesus to go to John is not to be baptized and then receive the Holy Spirit that the the the, the Catholic and the Christian traditions suggest. I'm not saying that that wasn't important, but the question I had was, well, gee, there was a whole lot of other people being baptized. How come they weren't the ones that are receiving the Holy Spirit as well? And why was he so unique? Well, maybe he was already, you know, had kind of moved through that process of individuation in which he he is eliminating his ego so that the Holy Spirit can actually, you know, fill him. You know, those are the types of questions that I asked. Well, and and I think the the one thing that you came up with that that I totally, absolutely, 100% agree with, um, though it's not in the Bible, is that that he had to have had at some point a near-death experience. And... That, to me, rings so very true for the people that I know who have had near-death experiences have, you know, 99% of them that come back from a near-death experience have a glow about them. They, They have a knowingness that is of peace and love and charity, and it changes all of their lives profoundly. Yes, and I actually have a close friend who has had that experience. In fact, he's had two. So, but before we, let me just kind of back this up a little bit. So imagine I am now, I got my big whiteboard, and I am now trying to piece his life back together. 
and I am looking at the New Testament, and I'm saying, gee, Jesus seems to be shot out of a cannon. He's a cannonball. He's been shot out of the cannon. His ministry is like a military campaign. He seems to know exactly what he wants to do, when to do it, how to do it, and he's doing it. And so there was kind of this fire in his belly. There was a fire in his mind. There was a fire within him that just pushed him forward, you know, just like with this intensity, you know. It's almost, it just, it was just so aggressive. And I thought, how does somebody have that level of intensity? Where does that come from? And again, if you go and say, well, he's the son of God and he was supposed to die for your sins, oh, well, then that was what he was supposed to do. And so he just fulfilled his obligation. Well, okay, but that still doesn't answer the personal questions that I had, which is what's driving this fire? What's Where's this coming from? And so I've had my own kind of enlightenment experience, and it was a very profound experience. But there were a couple of things about it that I could say when I looked at Jesus' life, I said, how did you get an open heart? How did your mind open? How did you... Um, come up with this idea of courage and fearlessness to be able to conduct a ministry in a time where it was very, very dangerous to do what it is that he was doing. So those were the three big issues that I was grappling with. And that was, again, how do you have an open mind? What did you see? What did you experience? What did you know? How do you have an open heart? We all, you know, it is the the, whole, the heart is the hardest of all the organs to be open to, right? How do you have an open heart? It's most people's hearts are closed. And it usually takes a lot of exercises, so to speak, to open up one's heart and to feel that love. It doesn't come, it doesn't come naturally. It seems to have been um, hardened as we grow older. So he's, he is operating with an open heart. And yet at the same time, he's super, super courageous and he's got a lot of grit and a lot of determination and a lot of fire in him to be able to conduct his ministry. Okay, so there are three components that I notice and I ask myself, what would be the most logical thing that could have happened? What kind of experience must he have had to be able to have those three components now in operation, whereas before they might have been closed, they might have been shut down, but now they're open, and now he's, he's you know, working on all, all cylinders. So I thought, okay, I had an enlightenment experience. Well, that helped open up my, my mind. Okay, well, what about the opening of the heart? Well, I've read a lot of um, Catholic mystics to know the difference between the open mind and the open heart. You can read it in some of, their, in some of the, the writings uh, of the, the the Christian mystics, and I, I can't think of some of the names that would say, you know, that I would look at it when it comes to the heart, the opening of the heart, and then where does he get this kind of this samurai uh, fearlessness? So I went down and I looked at the big types of experiences that one can have, in which all three of those might have been in operation, and so I thought, okay, um, there's something that something had to have happened. So when I was rereading the Gospel of Thomas, there's a saying in there, and it said, if an angel comes to you, just realize your life is over. And I went, oh, my God, I'm on the right path. There had to have been something that happened to him. And that little saying is part of that preserve. It's the, a little element that says there is something on a, on a spiritual level, on a supernatural level, that had to have occurred, and the people who were within the Thomas community 
are still holding that idea that if there is something that happens to you, and we're going to call it an angel, boy, you know that your life is now about to change, and you know everything that you know and everything that you do, it's, it's over. Okay, so something happened with Jesus. Now, there were things within his sayings that made me believe that there was something that happened to him as well. So I call that the quick turnaround event. So um, mm-hmm. did Jesus, if you kind of go back and you read some of the prophets, and Isaiah was one that I, I loved, uh, you know, the angel comes to him and he takes a hot coal and he burns um, Isaiah's lips. And I went, okay, so now Jesus has the fire. He At least he has that fire, so that makes sense on one level. But it doesn't seem to open his mind the way that I understand his mind to be opened. So what about the open heart? Well, again, I mean, does the... Does a, an angelic presence open up one's heart? Maybe not. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but there's three components here. So the next one was, well, he must have had an enlightenment experience. And that's where, when I was writing the book, I used that entire sequence that, you know, when you read some of the, um, uh, the material from the East, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, and you'll see that there is, you know, there's those supernatural enlightenment experiences that have changed people's lives, these saints' lives. Okay, but that still doesn't answer all three parts. And then finally, um, one day I was um, watching TV, and they were talking about people who had had um, severe trauma. You know, they fell out of a tree, they got run over, something, you know, severe happened to them, and they died. And they came back, and they were savants in things that uh-huh. they've never had any types of experiences for, before. You know, so somebody dies, or they have this head trauma. Next thing you know, they're mathematicians. They were never never mathematicians before, or they came back and they're musically inclined. And I went, my God, is there anything in the New Testament and in Jesus's sayings that would um, point to a some type of death experience? And lo and behold, there are. Mm-hmm. There are. I think that if you know, I don't have the information in front of me, but there were. I think that there. When I cataloged all of his sayings, I went, you know, there's this interesting thing that he keeps talking about, and it seems rather peculiar. And he's talking about robbery. Something happened in which there was this robbery. So, can a robbery and a death experience be connected? And lo and behold, in the Good Samaritan, there is a robbery and there is a death experience. Mm-hmm. And I went, you know, Jesus is probably Jesus is talking about himself right there. He's the man who's dead on the road. Oh yeah. And so um, again, when you go back to what Jesus talks about uh, with in the relationships to robbery, there are several. And you know, I'm asking myself where. At all times, what I found out is that Jesus is always talking about what he knows, all the time. He never speculates. He never wonders. He never asks the question, well, you know what, why don't we try this and maybe it will work out. He never does that. Why? So when he is now talking about robberies or having to turn the other cheek, you know, being beaten up, he's talking from experiences, He's talking from his own experience. So with that, I started to conclude that there had to have been some profound experience that he had that dealt with, one, a robbery, and two, that he might have been you know, beat up and almost left for dead. And, mm-hmm. and then in my book, I explore that as a near-death experience. And that opened yeah. him up. 
I you know I, I would totally agree. And it it in his early childhood, you you basically surmised that he was he was he was arrogant to a degree in some places and and things like that. And yet after that experience, there's a sense of of he speaks so often of putting the ego aside, not letting the ego influence you, being, you know, being more of a a universal rather than a, a the ego is something that that is something that everyone everyone wrestles with it constantly, but he seemed to be able to absolutely put it aside, especially when it came to his disciples and things like that. He tried to treat everyone equally. He tried to not judge. I mean, it was it was so very evident that that something had influenced him to let go of his ego and allow himself to to be more of a cha- of a channel for love and giving and kindness, compassion and all of that. And yeah. and it, it's amazing. And uh I I and the other thing that that you described so beautifully um that I loved um it may not have relevance to this or it may, I don't know, but but when he had that experience of of seeing his body and and going somewhere else um he he met a consciousness not a person and that consciousness he gave the title of father to so that so that you know the father that he's talking to is a consciousness it's not a person it's not an entity it's a it, 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 I forget how you described it, but you did it so beautifully. In that, that when we're in spirit, we are not a person anymore, but we are a consciousness that has an identity. And he gave the. Go ahead. Oh, okay. So I'll pick this up. We believe that when we die, we're going to go to some place that looks like you know um, some king's palace. And there's going to be all these people there and all these entities there. And it's going to be, you know, lined with gold, whatever it is, right? It's just going to be this Mm -hmm. place. And then, oh, gee, we're going to then be escorted up and we're going to see God sitting on the throne. Well, that's an image of the king. That's the image of the palace. And I Mm -hmm. ask myself, this is a form, okay? So now we're going to get really, really deep into... Eastern philosophy and into Plato and into kind of what's behind the veil experiences. Okay. There is no form and there is no substance. It there seems to, and there's probably no uh, um, energy and consciousness when you finally get kind of behind the veil. And this is where Buddhism takes us, and this is where mm-hmm. um, even the Hindus take us when they kind of go with ultimate reality. There seems to be nothing there. However, there is something there. It's all pure potential. So when you transfer mm-hmm. the pure potential and you cross this line, it's imaginary line. It's kind of like the line in football. There's this line of scrimmage, <laughs> and all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, you hike the ball, and all this stuff is now in action, right? So... Um, in a sense, the first cause in the Greek idea, you have the mystery and then you have a first cause, and now everything is now rolling down out into kind of the material world. Well, we want to think that God somehow is within this material world and that there's a form and there's a substance to it. And what I 
understand from my experiences and from the from the uh, my understanding of the Gnostics, and even with Jesus' sayings in the um, the New Testament, their form and substance are not God. That's mm-hmm. just like kind of another element of God. So if we kind of went down and we said, you know, there's a couple of metaphors that I can use here, because uh, I know this gets very abstract and very obtuse, and it kind of gets you can you lose a lot of people very quickly. But oh, don't worry, imagine, I have a great audience. Okay. okay, okay. So imagine we now are in what is referred to as the ground of being, and in the ground of being, you have a pool. So a person comes up and jumps in the pool and drowns. Another person comes up, jumps in the pool, and learns to swim. And eventually that person then starts to compete, you know, like how fast can I really swim? So then another person comes into the pool, jumps in, the person trains them how to swim, and now the two of them are in competition. Since the pool is the ground of being, the pool doesn't care whether or not you drowned have fun in the pool, or you compete. Because from the pool's point of view, all you're having is a pool experience. Mm -hmm. And Jesus' ideas of the Father are pointing to that idea. So the Father is actually a form of, like, energy and consciousness. We want it to be form and substance, but it's not. In fact, Mm -hmm. the Father, from what I was able to gather is a term that he used to personalize the relationship we have with the divine. But at the same time, it was a very abstract idea, and the Greeks used it. Pythagoras used it, and it meant the one. Yes. So when yeah, you no, finally just... get back into the, the oneness of something, then you get, ba- you get past all of distinction and all of separation. So well, that's, that's where Jesus he was. was. Teaching. Yeah, I mean, we are one family. We are one, and and wanting to bring it all together. Um, it it's yes, and you did it beautifully. Um, that Thank wasn't you. abstract at all. <laughs> no, I just I I love that. Uh, what was one of the other things that he said that well that you said sort of in the book that I have adhered to that that basically a teacher who hasn't lived a lesson has no right to try to teach it. I believe that. I really, really Me do. Too. You know, I think there's so many people that are teachers, and all they're doing is they're teaching, you know, from books. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's very important. But what happens when you have your own experiences? And those are the types of experiences that um, actually teach us the most. So you want some training, but at some point you need to have experiences. So if you're training for to go play tennis, you know, you'll never really understand how good you are until you go out and compete against another person. Yeah. And that's how I look at so, it. So, so in essence, now, he lived during a time when uh, the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah. Yes. And apparently there were a lot of Messiahs out there. Yes. And, and he didn't really want to be, he, he preferred the term, even beyond rabbi, to prophet. Yes, which I, so which I thought was interesting. There's okay. Now we get into Jesus's ideas of titles. Okay. So what kind of titles are he is he using? And the question is is not only is he what kind of title? Not only is the question what kind of titles is Jesus using? 
The bigger question is, is why is he using them? Okay. So if we go and we look at what the expectations were, there was uh, a Roman occupation. It Uh wasn't pleasant. There were um, puppets, so to speak, that the Romans instituted. So the king essentially was uh, an instrument. The king of Israel was an instrument of the Romans. And the high priests, they were supposed to have been from a particular bloodline. They weren't. Uh, And the Romans, apparently, from what I was able to determine, was to uh, appoint people. And it it even got to the point where I started realizing that I think the way that you got appointed was how much money are you willing to give the Romans to be appointed. (laughs) Most probably. And um, we kind of understand a little bit of this because Pontius Pilate was, uh, was considered very, very corrupt. And I had to ask myself, why, what's going on here, and why would, what's, what's his corruption? Uh, he was a really kind of a, a mean kind of a spirited guy, and uh, he, he was a no-nonsense kind of a guy, and he wasn't interested in juries, and he was just interested in executing people on the spot. So he was a, a real tough, kind of a mean-spirited guy. At the same time, he was considered corrupt. So where's the corruption there? Okay, so... Um, what are the Essenes? The Essenes are the ones who felt that they were the most legitimate of all the high priests with the proper bloodline. And the bloodline had to come from Aaron. So they felt that they were of the, the proper bloodline. And then who's supposed to be the king of, of Israel? Well, you know, the Herod family was half Jewish. So they, that mm-hmm. didn't go over well. And, of course, now they're the, the, the Roman um, puppets, so to speak. So the people were very, very upset with, with Rome, and the Romes, Romans are actually uh, taxing the, um, the Jews, and they were doing it pretty heavily. So when it came to, say, the fishermen who Jesus uh, gathered up and collected as his disciples, there was a tax on, there was like a, a tax on, the, on your fishing boat, a, a license. And then when you went out and you got you you caught something, then you had to pay a levy. So, you know they were getting money right and left. And then there was a head tax, and then there was a temple tax. So the, you'd had the temple people, um, the guards, or excuse me, the um, the uh, collectors coming around and collecting the temple tax. So the Jewish people were being taxed quite a bit, and it was very frustrating. So there was a lot of um, uh, social turmoil in the air, and there was a lot of um, frustration and anger and a lot of expectation that somebody would come in and just kind of like wipe the slate clean and start over, and that was what the, uh, the Messiah was supposed to do. So when Jesus comes along, and he's now, I mean, a Messiah, the Messiah is one who was anointed by God, and we can, I would safely say that Jesus had some kind of anointing. <laughs> I mean, this man mm-hmm. was filled with this divine energy, with divine insight, with compassion and love that was very different from the rest of um, his neighbors and, and his society. Now, I'm not going to say it's like it was so different that it was, well, maybe it was so different that it was very, very abstract, because I know that there was a lot of confusion that, that Jesus engendered into the people who listened and even to his disciples. I mean, many times they said, you know, what do you mean by that? You know, 
One of the things mm-hmm. that Jesus, right, as the Messiah or as a teacher, you would expect Jesus as a Hebrew drawing upon his Hebrew heritage that would be discussing these types of problems. So where are the pro- you know where where are the analogs? Where are the stories from the past that Jesus could draw upon that would help people in in their particular situation? Well, the biggest one is Moses, you know, uh-huh. and he's let my people go, and so Moses takes the you know the Israelites out of of Egypt and you know across the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. So that's a big that's a big story to be talking about in a time of distress. Uh-huh. Jesus doesn't really Jesus doesn't talk about it. You would go, hey, how about David and Goliath? Hey, well, that's an interesting one. Um, where do we see somebody about to overthrow, um, you know, the Philistines? Where's the army? Where's the leader for that? Well, Jesus is talking about loving your neighbor and forgiveness yeah. and love your enemy. Well, that didn't go over very well. So, I mean, there was a lot of ambiguity and a lot of there, – there was this whole peculiar aspect to Jesus that must have been really kind of frustrating. And yet, yet at the same time, he was really a charismatic and amazing. So, yeah, so the idea of the Messiah uh, was a very prominent idea at that time. There were many people who were claiming to be Messiah. But Jesus is, Jesus is not looking at this from a political point of view. However, there is a political point of view because he's the one that's advocating kind of a new way of thinking in relationship to the divine and how we treat each other. So that became political just because of its um, its attitude towards consensus or the status quo. Oh, wasn't there some debate, you know, amongst the crowd, so to speak, that the that John the Baptist was the Messiah? The Messiah. People felt that John could have initiated something and Uh obviously i mean here's the thing so just imagine you have all of a sudden you're expecting something really magical to happen and there's going to be uh, (laughs) some big event that's going to happen and you're going you're just all filled with anticipation ready for it to happen well who's it going to be it's like kind of getting presents when you're a kid at christmas who's it going to be where is this person What's going to happen? Where is it going to happen? How is it going to happen? Hey, there's this person out in the wilderness, and he's talking this and this. Well, let's go find out. And then all of a sudden you're going, hey, maybe this is the one. And so there's all that expectation. There's all that buildup. So that's how I, have, that's how I had to imagine it. So now when, when people are saying to Jesus, hey, are you the Messiah? And he's going, well, who do you think I am? Now remember, okay. what Jesus wants is followers so that he can teach. He doesn't uh-huh. want people who are disappointed. So if he said, oh, no, 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 I'm not the Messiah. Don't ever think that, you know, because I don't want to be that. It's just like, you know what, I'll play your game. Follow me and I'll show you. Well, he he was a storyteller. He was definitely, yep. um, he was charismatic. And yes. he did he did weave teaching into story. He was he was a great storyteller, and and of course that's one of the main ways that the Jewish tradition tells their their stories is by giving a story to it. So um, he was he was amazing in that way. But but frankly, you know, if I had two people to choose as a Messiah, you know, I would not pick the wild man dressed in burlap eating grasshoppers as my Messiah. Just wouldn't do it. You know? Well, right. I, I, but just I, think of it. Think of like what that must have looked like. Oh my God, this guy's crazy enough to be able to pull something like this off. Maybe he's the one. 
Yeah. Right. Well, as that, opposed to somebody who's walking around in a, you know, in your 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 typical religious uh, garments, you know, because even Jesus says, you know, you're all dressed in your fine clothing, and yet, you know, you're whitewashed tombs. So he had a problem uh-huh. with people who were dressed up, you know, dressed really, really well, particularly the religious well, establishment. Oh yeah. Well, that's because they were using the tax money to do that and not feed the poor. Um, easy one. But I, I think one of the other things that, that distinguishes him from from some of the others is that, that he he included women um, to a far greater degree than than they had ever been included in any ministry that that I have read about. To be honest with you, there was a, a real sense of of they have brains and they 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 have wisdom as well, and he acknowledged that with the fact that women were a part of his ministry as well. And you know he, at every turn, Jesus was flipping the proverbial table. So not mm-hmm. only did he do it physically, you know, there with the money changers, he was doing it across the board uh, with not only his sayings but who he met and who he was engaged with, who he ate with. So you know, Jesus was a man who liked wine. You know, people were con- uh, said that he's a drunk. Uh, he liked mm-hmm. to gather people around who were essentially considered the outcasts. And when you get now to the women, and this is a very important issue, uh, particularly for our day, uh, um, women had a very, very specific role that they were supposed to play in in, in Jewish society. Now, I can't say is it, if it, is it exactly like the way um, the Muslims are treating women in the Middle East, but there's an analog to that. So mm-hmm. women were supposed to be mothers. They're supposed to be caretakers. They are the ones that have to take care of the house. They are the ones that take care of the family. The men are the ones who are supposed to be educated. They're the ones that are going to go make the money, uh, etc. Right? They're going to go the ones out, go fight the wars, all that kind of stuff. So. Um, women had a very particular role in society, and Jesus felt that women had an opportunity to be included in his new kingdom of heaven, in his new vision of the world, and that they should have a greater role than just the particular role that they had prior to that. So he included them into the ministry. And and you know it's just um, when you when you look at the fact that that there were women included that there were women that went out and preached too, and you know for the most part uh, I, I think some of the women were stronger than the men because especially after his crucifixion it wasn't the men that that you know went to the to the grave to see if he was still there it was the women. That's right. I mean, you have one disciple, one disciple yeah. apparently. That was a male. The rest were all women. So they were inspired by Jesus all the way through to the very end. So and they were at Jesus. The, they were at the they were at at the crucifixion, and it was only was it Thomas that was that was at the crucifixion? He was the only one John. that was at the crucifixion. John. Oh, John. Okay. John. Just one of them. I think it was just John. And the rest were women. So here's yeah. so Jesus not only included women in his ministry, he had women of means. So we now kind of understand a little bit of that Jesus actually came from a wealthy family, which is what I, I totally uh, found 
compelling and interesting when I read his sayings because the number one topic that he spoke about was money. And then the the different types of ways that you use money was a big issue for Jesus, and he broke it. I saw it being broken down into four categories. So there was the um, kind of the cash crop, somebody's owning property and they're growing something and then they're selling it. There is the merchant. Uh-huh. There is the um, the person who works with their hands. And there is also the person who receives an inheritance. So Jesus seemed to have been around money. And um, when Luke talks about the women of means, we have Jesus' mother, Mary, as one of those who were women of means, meaning they were wealthy. We have Mary Mm -hmm. Magdalene, who was wealthy. We have a woman by the name of Joanna, and she was the wife of a man whose name is Cusa, and he was the manager of Herod's household. Think about that for one moment. (laughs) There was a woman in Jesus' ministry whose husband was in the court who managed the king's estate. Now, that's pretty potent stuff. That's really, really potent stuff. Did he he cure her son or daughter? I forget which. I, I... Uh, you know, when it remember. comes to those those particular stories, there are a number of them, and uh-huh. there was a centurion who um, Jesus healed. Okay, let me go back to the women, okay? So, because this okay. is a very important issue. So, let me just kind of finish up with that. So, not only did Jesus have these women of means that were part of his ministry, he actually went out and ministered to women. Mm-hmm. So he's curing women. He's casting out demons from women. Uh, he's, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. There was a woman who touched his garment who was bleeding for 12 years. There was a, uh, a Canaanite woman who uh, pleaded with Jesus to heal her daughter, which he did. There, was, um, there were two women uh, in particular who didn't seem to be following Jesus, but Jesus always would go to their house, and that was Mary and Martha. So they were devoted and loyal friends. Uh, we mm-hmm. see that uh, Jesus was able to stop a stoning uh, of a woman who was supposedly caught in adultery, and he said, you know, he who is without sin cast the first stone. There is the mm-hmm. woman that he... When he was on his way up to Samaria, uh, he was able to um, talk to her, and his disciples were very upset when they came back and they saw him talking to her. Um, So Jesus had a ministry that not only included women, but it also helped women. So that's uh, I would just I just wanted to make that very clear that he seemed to be very inclusive when it came to that. So part of his teachings, not only do we have that abstract idea of the Father and the Kingdom of Heaven, we also have the practical ideas about compassion and loving your uh, neighbor as yourself. But then we also have his inclusion of women who were kind of second-rate citizens, so to speak, um, in his ministry. And he also went after those who were considered um, kind of the poor and the destitute and the um, unwelcomed. Well, also, wasn't it, um, and I go way back in history here, too, um, it was Helena that helped to establish the churches, um, you know, when 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 Christianity was born, so to speak. She's yes, the one that this went is the, the mother of Constantine. Yes, the mother of Constantine. Yeah. 
So now we have – now this is another story, and I don't know a lot about it, but now we're looking into the aristocratic Romans who have adopted Christianity as their religion. Mm-hmm. And that has its own influence. It has its own history. It has its own kind of flow and its and its currents. And um, all I can say is is that there was Helen, who was the the mother of Constantine, and Constantine was the one who organized the Council of Nicaea, and um, and she went out to find all the relics of Jesus. Well, after after Jesus was was crucified. There, there were lots of different sects, um, sects, CTS, not X, S, um, yes. <laughs> of Christianity, and yes. and Constantine kind of at some point said, "Enough, we're going to all pull it together, and it's going to be one church." And um, right. So, so. You know, everybody had their own idea as to the teachings of Jesus and, uh, and of course, the writings, because the writings were pulled together at about the same time with Eusebius and Constantine saying, you know, we need a Bible. So we have a development. (laughs) So in the second century, we have a development, and we have um, a Gnostic by the name, oh my God, uh, <laughs> I, I've lost his name, Basiliad Marcon, one of the guys, and I think he was from Sinope, if, I, if I'm pronouncing that correct, from present-day Turkey. So uh, I actually have been to Sinope in Turkey, and it's right on kind of the middle of of the country uh, on the north point of the Black Sea. And this individual collected the sayings of Jesus. He collected the gospel. I think it was Luke. Boy, you know what? I'm kind of out of my um my memory bank here. So I'm just gonna <laughs> I, I'm 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 being pressed really hard. Okay, so he liked I think he liked Luke and he liked a few other he liked a few other things. And so this guy was collecting the uh letters and the stories of Jesus. And mm-hmm. there he came down, and I think he ended up meeting like Irenaeus, and it was then that they realized, oh my God, we need our own Bible. So mm-hmm. it was at that point that they, um, the Christians, the proto-Christians versus the Gnostic Christians, because now there was the split, and mm-hmm. it really at that point was had widened to the point where they weren't even talking to each other. In fact, they were hurling insults. <laughs> So they hated each other. I mean, yeah. So they hated them. They, they hated each other quite a bit. And so uh, the the, the proto Christians went, "Oh my God, we need to have uh, our own our own Bible. We need to have our own scriptures because there's so much. There's so many other stories that are circulating around. Um, we uh-huh. need to have our own." The other thing that's very fascinating about this is that the Christians are running around in um, Rome and the Roman Empire, and they're talking about all this, how wonderful this whole new religion was that Jesus started. Of course, you know, you and I were already talking about how he really probably wasn't interested in starting a new religion, but his ideas needed to have some type of, they needed some type of vessel to move it forward. So... Uh um, you know that's always the issue. <laughs> How are you going to move this thing forward? Who's going to be succeeding us? This, and who's going to be in charge? Who's going to lead this? How is how is there going to be succession? We all, we, you know, 
regardless of where you are, you have that issue. Who's going to be the next captain of the ship? And what kind of yeah. ship do we need to have so that we can kind of move move this vehicle, so to speak, out into the world and it still have some type of presence and um, it has some teaching capacity and it has some uh, healing capacity and it has some saving capacity, right? You need to have something uh-huh. because otherwise everybody's just going to be living all by themselves without any unity. Or uh, they'll end up losing their own kind of like divine spark because sometimes you need to have other people with you to carry on the the whole spirit of the movement. So Jesus seems to inspired enough people to where they took his ideas and his ministry and his examples and his teachings out into the world. Well, the question becomes is, who are you talking to and what do you need to do to get new followers to believe in you? If it's so foreign, you're not going to get any, any new followers. You might get a few, right? but you really want to get some, you want some tangent, you want something tangential or excuse me, you want something that's kind of has some substance to it that is um, tangible so that you can say, Hey, this is what I believe in. Okay. So the Christians start thinking that they've got something new on their hands. Well, the Romans go, uh, Listen, what we really like in our society is really old stuff. So this new stuff that you're talking about doesn't cut it with us. So the Christians went, oh, wait a second, we're tied to the Old Testament. Well, Mm -hmm. the the, the Gnostic in the second century said, no, Jesus is so brand new, he has nothing to say about the Old Testament, because the Old Testament has this vengeful God, and uh, we don't like that guy. What we like, the God that we like, is the God Jesus talks about because he's about love and compassion and forgiveness and starting a new life. Very different from Old Testament stuff, okay? Well, the Christians went, now, wait a minute. If we go down that road, (laughs) we have nothing to tie it to because the Romans aren't going to recognize our movement because it's not attached to anything that they recognize. Uh Oh, You see, now all of a sudden, this gets into some very interesting territory. What do I need to do not only to be new, but I also have to be old? What do I do? How do I make this work? So the Gnostics pushed this new idea out into the world, which is, hey, we're going to have this whole new, we're going to have a bunch of uh, um, written documents, and we're going to use those as our teaching um, tools. And the Christians went, hey, what a great idea. We need our own. So when it finally got to the Council of Nicaea, that had formed. Now, here's the other interesting thing. In the second century, this is a very interesting time, very, very interesting time. So the first century is just like the Christians are trying to get off the ground, right? It's almost like what's an airplane, and how do you Uh make one, and how do you fly? And now they're defending themselves all the time because, you know, this is a brand-new religion, and it has to get some ground, and they're being persecuted. So, you know, that in itself – is a is a challenge to overcome and work through and figure out. So when you finally get to the second century, some of the Christian or the the the, the, the fathers, the Christian fathers are saying, hey, maybe what we need is a universal tr- uh, uh, a universal church, in which all the sayings and all the teachings fall under one one guise. Well, that's Catholicism. Uh-huh. Yeah. That second century. So it wasn't until. Uh, Let's see, it wasn't until the uh, 300s that the Council of Nicaea came about. So it was another 100 years. Okay, there's another thing that has to be recognized is that 
inside Jesus' sayings are these types of Gospel of Thomas sayings. They're very, very difficult sayings. They're very obtuse. They're very abstract. They're very philosophical. So there's a there's a um, uh, an interest. Um, people's minds were captured, their imaginations were captured by these very profound ideas because people at that time were all very religious, they were all very spiritual, and they were all trying to figure out what the heck life is all about, right? And so you can kind of say, well, life is dealing with the numbers and the secret patterns of numbers, or you know, it's dealing with the patterns of letters and numbers. So you have kind of an early version of the Greek Kabbalah. You know, there's there's all these deeper relationships and understandings and, and impulses and energies that are flowing in the world. So how do you capture all of that? How do you talk about all that? People were interested in knowing that, and Christianity had its own version. And so part of the Gospel of Thomas had these like very, very abstract, amazing, amazing philosophical ideas. And um, the second century Christians were saying that, gee, okay, now we, what we want is we want a whole big, group of people that come in the front door and we're going to go through the rites and the baptisms and the, the practices. But there's going to be the secret meetings in the back that is going to be very philosophical. And most people aren't going to be able to do that. So we're going to just take the really the, the, the brightest and we'll put them in the back. And we're going to have this kind of a, or upstairs, however you want to talk, however you want to describe it. But anyway, there was another group of people that were all very, very smart that were going through and trying to understand the real profound deep mysteries of the universe and Christianity inspired that so uh-huh. now you have two groups of people within the church you have those who are very intelligent philosophical and are are, are um, inspired by Jesus and what he brought then there's the whole practical side of how do you deal and feed the poor and you know deal with the uh, kind of the uneducated so there was a split personality to the church. Well, again, that was something that was happening in the second century that needed to be corrected when it came to the Council of Nicaea. And then you also had um, the uh, Christians uh, that were more Gnostic-leaning. So they tended to go down into Egypt. And that's a whole other story, which is a very fascinating story. But... Uh, um, uh, for what we're talking about right now, the, the the formation of the Catholic Church as we know it had to do away with a lot of the different ideas that were circulating throughout the Roman Empire. Well, they didn't, they also, didn't they also borrow from the Old Testament to validate the fact that he was the Messiah? and the, Oh, the, yeah, there's all of that prophecy that they were talking about. In fact, yeah. it's, it's, it's all very fascinating when I was looking at this, this particular subject. So I did not, I, I um, you know, when I look at Paul, you know, if, if I, I, I'm interested in Paul and I'm interested in his philosophy and I'm interested in how he is like the first Christian. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't necessarily see Paul and Jesus as the same, although, you know, I'm supposed to believe that if I see Paul, I see Jesus, and if I see Jesus, I see Paul. That's the way Christianity wants it to work. But what I saw is that they were pointing in different directions. Oh, yeah. So um, just because I see Paul doesn't necessarily mean I see Jesus. So um, 
when I looked at Paul, I just said, okay, how many times is he quoting the Old Testament to say that Jesus was the Son of God who died for your sins? And mm-hmm. I didn't count all of those because I figured I'd wait if I was going to do a new <laughs> book. So, uh, but I did do it in the Gospel of Matthew. So I went, oh, let's go ahead and count up all the times that one of the Christian writers, uh, well, this particular writer, Matthew, who is not Matthew of uh, the, the, the disciple Matthew, it's somebody else with his yeah. name. <clears throat> That that is a point I want to bring out that that isn't talked about too often. And I just just briefly, all of the books of the Bible were not written by the people of that name. That's that's correct. We have assumptions that they are his first generation. That's what I'm going to call. It. Let me just finish this point. There are 38 sayings that the Old Testament is supposed to be pointing to Jesus. Okay, 38. So just imagine you're going to tell a story in which you're now using 38 examples to show how Jesus fulfilled this particular idea. Well, it seems to be very slanted in the way that you want to present Jesus. Paul, lo and behold, uses a completely different set of Old Testament ideas. Okay, so they're really different, very, very different. So I'm trying to ha- I'm trying to work through the issue on how to reconcile those very different ideas. So that's that. Okay, now you're asking the other question, which is a very, very important issue. This is really, really important. We believe, you know, the way that I was taught is that, you know, God inspired everybody to write these words, and it's the gospel truth, it's God's words, and you can never question God because God doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. Right? right, we all know that. So right. the question is: Is Jesus had? I mean, we think that it's just twelve disciples. No, I mean, I think it's Luke that said he had you know seventy. So yeah. um, there must have been a, now a, like an inner circle. Was there another inner inner circle? I don't know because it looks as though there's this whole Gospel of Thomas community that is holding on to the sayings of Jesus. In fact, I think it was either saying number one or saying number two that says, you know, these are the words of Jesus that were recorded. So somebody was recording Jesus' words, and the, the Thomas community was holding on to those words. So the question is, hmm. who the heck is that Thomas community? But so is that the inner, inner community or a disciple? Is it just the disciple of one? I don't know. I mean, this is where it all gets kind of nutty. I, you know, and this is something that I didn't uh, explore a great deal because I was more interested in, you know, the personality and the biography of Jesus than I was the, you know, what happened to all the disciples. But there is almost no uh, record, there's no writings from the first group of people that Jesus taught or were disciples of. There were, there's no one. There's a little bit of Peter. The Gospel of John, people say, well, John, that's John from, um, you know, the, at the base of the cross. That's the young boy that Jesus mm-hmm. liked apparently so much. Well, scholars are saying no, and I'm beginning to believe that that's not, you know, I, I believe that that's the case, that there's there's two communities that came together to form the John community, 
and then ended up writing their gospel um, according to the fact that they there were they were opposed to each other, and then they came together and they unified themselves in a particular way of thinking. So, John, it's possible that John, John, um, who wrote the the Book of Revelation. Uh, might have been Jesus's disciple, but the John of Revelation is not the same John who wrote um, the Gospel John or the Epistle John one and John two, or First John, Second John. So we only have really uh. some of Peter's. We only have some of Peter's um, sayings or uh, writings. So Paul did. Ne- Paul never met Jesus. So he's essentially the main guy that has written most of the letters in the New Testament. We have Mark, who wrote the first gospel. Well, he seems to be connected to Alexandria. We have Luke and Matthew. So Luke is Paul's protege. We have Matthew, who we have no idea who he was. I mean, there is a Matthew in the Bible, and he's the tax collector, but scholars say most likely that's not the same Matthew. And then we have John, and that seems to be, oh, possibly 80, 90, 100, 120 years after the fact of Jesus' death. So um, that's that's unlikely that he would have been, you know, part of that – um, 1.0 group, right? Jesus 1.0, yeah. he's, he's the center, right? And then you have the disciples, so they're part of that 1.0 group. Well, it looks, though, it looks as though there was, you know, Paul is like disciple or uh, apostle from the 2.0, you know, uh, version. Yeah. And then from there you go, you know, the 3.0 and then the 4.0 and then the 5.0. So who's <laughs> writing all this stuff? It's not the first, it's not the first group. It's the second, yeah, so. it's the third, it's the fourth, it's the fifth, it's all of that. Yeah, it's, things so, get... They get yeah, watered things. down and we can see it. We can see how if you take a saying from... Boy, it's really interesting. When you take a saying from Mark and you compare that exact same saying to Luke and Matthew, you go, hey, there's been some addition here. There's been some editing. They've changed uh, a few things. They've added a little bit to the front and they've added a little bit to the back. The group that really is interested in that particular subject is the Jesus Seminar. So they have a book uh-huh. called The Five Gospels. So you have the four canon gospels, and then you have the Gospel of Thomas. So um, I, that was one of the books that I used that was pretty influential in the work that I did. When it came to what are the, what's the most authentic of Jesus' sayings, they, they're the ones that are looking at that. And there are so many gospels out there that that you know are not included in the Bible itself that are fascinating. And yeah, you have Philip, and you have Peter, and then you have the Gospel of Mary, and you have the Gospel of Judas. And see, again, you have to kind of go back to understanding what was going on with the Gnostics and the Christians. Well, it's a little bit like kind of what's going on with uh, America today, where you have the left and you have the right, and so now they're hurling insults back and forth at each other. And the Gnostics hated the proto-Christians, and the Christians hated the pro- uh, the Gnostics. And so when it finally got to, uh, they never got into a, a fighting match. I don't think they did, but they definitely got into a a theological and literary duel. And one of the things that the Gnostics like to do, and we're looking at, you know, in the 2nd century and late, 2nd century and early, um, Mm 3rd century, 
they, what they like to do is hurl insults at each other, and, and the Gnostics were, um, they like to take all of the most important concepts of the Christians and turn them upside down. So they're the, so they're the ones that are going to be writing like how, how important Judas was. You know, instead of the traitor, he actually was the most important, you know, or, or Mary Magdalene and that type. So, however, it's possible that they're still um, presenting some truth to the story. So maybe they kept preserving some of the story, and so mm-hmm. they were using it against the Christians in a way that would really infuriate the Christians, and they seem to have done a very good job of it. But well, anyway, they like to they like to invert a lot of what the Christians are saying was like gospel truth, and then they would flip it um, upside down. Uh, during during his lifetime, how much do you think the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah influenced the actions that Jesus took in his life? So what we want to ask ourselves, is there a direct one-to-one correlation? So is Jesus modeling his ministry after the fact that he's read all the Old Testament and he's now picking out particular details? So my guess is Jesus – okay, we have to just stop for one second here and just really kind of look at this and ask ourselves, what is Jesus' biggest thing that he has to overcome? He has to overcome anonymity. He yeah. has to walk out in front of all these people, and he has to get their attention very quickly. Uh-huh. And one of the things that he does to get people's attention is to use titles. So he liked to call yeah. himself the son of man and the son of Adam. Well, that's interesting, right? So instead of addressing me as Jesus, hey, he's the son of man, he's the son of Adam, uh, or Jesus will ask somebody, who do you think that I am? Well, you're the Messiah. You're right in thinking that, right? Well, he doesn't want uh-huh. to turn them away because he doesn't want them. To, he doesn't want to lose, uh, at least in my mind, he does not want to lose a follower. He wants people to listen to him so that he can help them understand what it is that he understands. So if yeah. they're expecting a Messiah, he's going to go along with it. But, you know, give me some time so I can share with you what it is that I really think and what I know. Let me show mm-hmm. you. Let me tell you. So he's not going to turn people away. At the same time, he has to capture people's imaginations to make it seem as though he's somebody to listen to. So he was a master of theatrics. Yes. He had to have been. So he wanted to look a particular way. He wanted to talk a particular way. He wanted to confront people a particular way. He wanted to heal people in a particular way. He wanted to use some of the Old Testament, that pe- Old Testament stories, that people would recognize and use that to his advantage to get followers, to get people to listen to him, to get people to watch him, to get people to be interested in him, to get people to talk about him. You know, any I'm I'm going through this right now. How do I get more people to say to listen to what it is that I have to say? Am I just mm-hmm. going to be like a voice out in the wilderness where there's no one there? Well, now I have to go through. Well, what does branding mean, right? What is all the marketing? <laughs> what is the sale? What are the platforms? What are the social platforms? How do you get people interested in your product? What do you got to do? You know, and so. 
Um, you know, even Donald Trump the other day said Michelle Obama was told by their publishers, create controversy. Well, holy <laughs> smokes. <laughs> well, I don't so you know, think you're doing that. You're doing that definitely. But, but you know, it's, it's, you're right. He was, in many ways, there is, there is an element here of a, uh, I, I, for a number of years, I served in the spiritualist church as a minister, and I often wondered why they did the giving of messages at the end of the service. And so one of the other ministers explained to me, it's the hook. It gets people into the church to hear the message, and then you give them the reward of you know doing doing the the razzle dazzle at the end of the service, and it feels to me as though Jesus did very much the same. He never says, "I am the Son of God. I am incarnate here on earth to give you a message." He never says any of that stuff, but he does everything but say it. And, and and that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So Jesus doesn't walk into a crowd and he says, "Hey, everybody, listen to me, because I'm the Son of God and I'm here to die for your sins, and you better believe in me." He doesn't say that. However, when you get nope. to John, the Gospel of John, right, eighty, ninety, a hundred, hundred twenty years later, Jesus is—they're putting those words in Jesus's mouth. And I think that what's really going on at that point was what that that particular community was now recognizing that they wanted to believe in. Mm-hmm. As opposed to having Jesus say those things, they're putting those words in Jesus' mouth because that's what they want to believe. Well, during his lifetime, they were looking for a Messiah to overthrow the Romans and kick them out of the country. That's right. And that so was guess not... What? That's right. So guess what, it, what? Guess what the Christians do after the fact? So they not only say, "Hey, Jesus means actually the Son of God." So that's mm-hmm. one of their. That's how they appropriated that word, because Messiah just means anointed. It doesn't necessarily mean you're the Son of God. But that's what the Christians. You know, this is part of the wonder of Christianity is how you appropriate a particular word and concept and move it into the next phase of things. Right, uh-huh. so they they made it they made it into something that it was never supposed to be. So this is the new improvement of of the Messiah. That's how they worked, and they did it all the time. So what's the new and improvement version of Jesus now that Jesus was died and everybody expected him to return right away? Well, my God, they had to invent this whole end time prophecy in which Jesus is going to come back on a white horse. You know, and throw mm-hmm. Satan into the lake of fire and destroy all of mankind except for the true believers. I mean, it just got kind of nutty. Yeah. You know, but that was their hope. I mean, that's unfortunately, that was the hope that they had because at that time when that the, the book of Revelation was written, the Romans have destroyed Jerusalem. They've destroyed um, most of Israel. They've destroyed Masada. They were uh, they were burning the Christians, you know, in the forum, so and, and just slaughtering them, and it was just a horrific time. And so they're thinking, how do you? Here's this hope that we have. How do we justify all this evil that's being perpetrated against us? So, you know, that's the way that they were able to cope with that. Is that Jesus is going to return on a white horse and actually become not the 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 savior of of uh, Israel, but the savior of the world. 
So yeah, they elevated that concept. <laughs> That's the whole thing. They went from, okay, he's like kind of the king of the Jews to, oh, the king of the whole world. And, oh, now he's the, you know, now the later rendition is that Jesus was the Logos, which is, that's the that's a very, very Alexandrian term. It's part of the Therapeutae, mm-hmm. which was down in Egypt. So, um, anyway, philosophically, you know, they ended up having to create Jesus as the Logos with 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 God at the time of creation. So one one every now and then, you know, thinks Jesus is sitting up someplace watching all this and saying, "Oh my God, what are they doing now?" You know, it's uh-huh. just sort of his message was so simple, so loving, so pure that that um if you just practice the, you know, the 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 golden rule is at the foundation of every single organi- organized religion out there, and he was trying to to make it something that people practiced, that they that they lived instead of just said, and um, it, it it got it, it's it's kind of it's gotten out of hand. Not to diminish his work or his words or anything like that, but but he has been marketed unbelievably. And and his ministry has been skewed profoundly by by what he was trying to teach so simply in in those times two thousand years ago or whatever it is. Yes. So Jesus had very simple. Jesus had very simple words: "Love your neighbor," mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it's extraordinarily difficult to do. It's very difficult. Uh, Jesus had yeah. very simple words. Yeah, very, Jesus had very simple words, but he had very, very profound um, concepts. So simple words, hard to practice. Simple words, hard to understand. So there's that whole side to him. And then there was the whole, sh- let me show and tell you. Let me let, do the show and tell. Let me show you how this is done. Let me show you what it's like to go into a group of people and heal somebody. Let me show you how you go into a, a, a crowd that wants to stone somebody, and let me show you how you stop that. Let me um, show you how you can walk into a particular situation and everybody wants to hurl rocks at you and you can get out of that situation. Let me show you how you respond to people who are threatening you or who are challenging you in a very kind of mean-spirited way. He was always a man of action, always a man of action. Mm-hmm. He was always showing, he was always telling, he was always teaching. He was always well, giving he did up ang- himself. He did anger the high priest you know, tremendously because you know when when – when somebody said, you know, there are like 618 laws we have to abide by, he basically said, no, just, just, you know, love yourself as you love others and stuff like that. And, and basically he said, you don't have to do all 600 of those. Just do this one simple one and you're going to be fine. That's and right. He, he tried to make it a livable religion as opposed to, you know, uh, a religion that was so – so full of laws that you could barely breathe. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, and that's part of. Unfortunately, that's part of the heritage of an agricultural society, is that part of um, an agricultural society has to have a set of rules and regulations to to manage people's behaviors. Otherwise, it's just going to be complete pandemonium. Mm-hmm. So, but what happens is, is there's a tipping point when it goes from just trying to manage, you know, the population to suppressing the the population, and that's, 
I think that's what Jesus was really frustrated with is that, and he was frustrated with the Essenes as well, that when you enter into this monastic kind of lifestyle, it's, there are certain rules and regulations and there are certain ways that you conduct yourself that now becomes almost militaristic to the point where there is no spontaneity, there's no joy. And he said, the kingdom of heaven are like these children. Well, what are children like? I mean, you know, try to force them into doing something that they don't want to do, and they get frustrated. You know, mm. okay, sit down, sit down and eat your dinner, right? No, I want to play with my dinner. Or I want to go run and play and yell and scream and do what they do. That's what he was talking about. So this other idea of like how to abide by this rule and that rule and this rule and that rule, and then by because we're so good at following these rules, hey, we we must get a reward for that. Mm. Right? That's kind of yeah. where that goes. He, uh, you know... In, in in everything that you read about Jesus and everything that you hear about him, um, I, in your book you do say that he says, you know, he laughed and he cried and he did, you know, all of these things. But, but in nothing that is recorded do we see any of the joy that had to be a part of his reality, even though he was on a mission. Um you know, to to put forth a, a new way of living your life, uh, you don't hear any of that, and and the, the, it had to be in him as well. If there was that much joy and love in him, and there there was, then you know he had to in in order to get his message across, he had to allow them to brutalize him and to kill him. You know, it it, it, it happily. It made enough of an impact so that it wasn't a waste of his time in life. You know what? You have to ask. You know, that's one of the questions that I had to ask. Um, was what happens when you get to the very end of your life and you sacrificed your life for all of these people, and uh, you know, only one dis- one male disciple and a handful of other female disciples, and who knows, maybe some of the other disciples were watching from afar. You know, he sacrificed everything for them, and um, mm-hmm. there was no one there. So <laughs> that's a big issue. That's a big issue for me when I stopped and thought about that for a long time. I went, my God, look what he did, and look what he got. But on the back side, right, he's now one of the most famous people in the world, so there's something to be said about that level of energy. Um but well, getting back it, it, to some of the things that you were, let me just, let me, uh, if you don't mind, let me just mention this one thing because I wanted to address that, the issue about the love and sure. the joy and the happiness and all that. Oh, please, yeah. One, one of the, um, not only am I looking at what is written, and I'm looking at it from the New Testament point of view, particularly the, the, the Gospels, I'm also looking at it from the point of view from the Gospel of Thomas. There, after really spending a lot of time with this material, I, I, I kept asking myself, what's not here? And that just seemed to be this clarion call for me. That was the big question. Mm-hmm. Why, what's not here? Why am I not seeing this particular part of the story? And part of the reason is, is that you and I are interested in kind of the history of a particular individual, of uh, of a particular time, and how this these work together. At that time, 
the main focus and the main story was to say that mankind has been redeemed. And that is a really important story. Not only, you know, we are all governed by this very kind of base um, nature of ourselves in which we're governed by lust and by greed and by envy and by jealousy and, you know, sloth and all these other, you know, impulses. So the fact that Jesus was talking about a much more elevated sense of who we are and what we can attain and that the kingdom of heaven is within us, that is like a, this is a really an amazing story to say and to tell mm-hmm. and to share. And it's one in which there is a individual, there's, there's this presence of the divine that actually cares about you and loves you and that you can know this, this divine being. At the time, we have the the pagan religions and the mystery religions, and they weren't really interested in this personal connection. In fact, some of the issues were they were trying to make contracts with the gods so that the gods would not be so harsh on them, and they mm-hmm. would not trip them up, that they would not throw in their past, you know, sickness and death and and famine and um the loss of, you know, your kind of material well-being, you know, your income, you know, all that, you know. The the gods, the Egyptian, or excuse me, the, the, the Greek gods and the Roman gods seem to be interested in and tripping you up and, and preventing you from fulfilling your destiny, so to speak. Uh-huh. In Christianity, you have something very different. And it's a, it's a one, I, I really, it's, it's just a really beautiful story to tell. And so the most important thing was to tell the story and to tell the story about Jesus' life, how this event came about. But you and I and a number, you know, you and I and, and people who are like us are interested in knowing more. This isn't, the story is missing components and we would like to know more about the components. And for me, it was, who is this man, and why did he do it, and what did he do, and what led him to do it, and what kind of, what kind of background did he have that shaped his life and his experiences that would give him the ability and the means to conduct his ministry. To me, that was really important. That's the nuts and bolts that I talked about earlier. So, you know, there had to have been a lot of material that had to be left out just to be able to tell the story very quickly because people were, you know, they were somewhat illiterate. And so the best way to convey meaning was to tell very fascinating and, and, and stories about Jesus and what he did and what he accomplished as opposed to where he came from. But they, they tried to yeah. solve that problem by saying that he came from, he's, he comes from heaven. And that was it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, at one point in your book, you asked him that, and, and he said that he didn't really want his background to be known because he wanted his ministry to be known more than his background. And See, and that's a really that was like a big insight when I wrote that. What was the most yeah. important thing, him and where he came from, or what he was saying? And I think that's what the the, the gospel writers picked up so jesus you know this is a very peculiar story in and of itself and that is jesus is ministering in the galilee he's ministering in areas that people uh would have known him 
Did he have uh-huh. any friends? Did he have any friends? I mean, did he, you know, it's like, I just went to my high school reunion. I mean, did he kind of graduate from synagogue with some friends? <laughs> did they Did they not, like, look at him and go, hey, what the heck are you doing? What is so, it that you're talking you- about? You know, there's none of that. And that's, and I'm kind of wondering why they're, you know, what he'll, again, it kind of goes back to this nuts and bolts. That had to have been there. So there must have been something that was going on that Jesus had to have put that aside and try to minimize that. Well, you know, we all growing up have have moments of, of you know, lunacy and stuff like that. And, and we goof off and we spend time with our friends. Exactly, just exactly what you've said. And, and yet, there, uh, it does in some way. Uh, I think at some point in time he admitted that he and he and Mary Magdalene knew each other as children, but that's as far as he went. And and it's kind of like you you. There's a richness to what makes a person a person, and and part of that richness, as as wonderful as his message is, that part of that richness is missing because you don't. You don't see all that goes, all that went into making him who he was, and and all that he gave up. See, that's what it is. He gave up a tremendous amount, but you don't know what he gave up because you don't know what he had. Exactly. So we think that he just came from a poor background. Oh, well, because he was so poor, he didn't have to give up much because he was already poor. But the way I look at it is that Jesus gave up an entire life of what would be considered like domestic bliss mm-hmm. and his family and the people that he knew and he sacrificed that for a new family that he imagined could be created because of his insights and his wisdom and his efforts well i know in some places they they mentioned that that even his family and his friends thought he was crazy oh yeah they were totally they completely thought he was nuts and there was a reason for that you know let me go back also because this is a point that we find in buddhism so siddhartha grew up inside a palace you know kind of a royal palace city behind walls Uh and when the walls were open and he went outside he was looking at people who were older and who were sick and who were dying and, you know, in, in a state of misery. And he went, what's all this? And at the time, he had um, a bride. He had a wife, I should say, and a newborn son. And it was at that point when, you know, he was about to become, you know, have to really step into the shoes of being a father that he left. And he said, I have to go find out what this is all about. And... He made a great deal of sacrifice, and he tried to come back at a later time. This is Arthur. Had to come back at a later time to make amends with his wife, and she wouldn't have anything to do with him. So Jesus is kind of acting in a very similar way. He recognized that there was this much bigger idea out there that had to be addressed, and he was the one to address it. And he had to sacrifice his family. Now Mary decided to... to join him now the question is is at what point did she join him Mm -hmm. so i don't think it happened right off the bat i bet you she was really upset too that's my my feeling is that he 
he started his ministry. He kind of went off small. He kind of la- he left, and he gathered some people. Um, I think that when he came back from John the Baptist, and he was out in the desert for the forty days, he. Uh, you know, he was completely physically and emotionally depleted, and he, he needed a lot of attention. And, of course, the, the Gospels say, well, the angels attended to him. Uh, and I think what happened is he went back home. And oh, yeah. when he when he got better, he now goes and he talks to the people in the synagogue about some of the new ideas and some of the new insights and kind of the experiences that he has and the wisdom that he has, and they're looking at him with mouths dropped, going, what the heck are you talking about? This is completely <laughs> against everything that we believe in, and yet this is the community that his family and his and um, his friends are a part of, and they run him out of town. Well, I can't imagine Mary, if he's, you know, Mary being married to Jesus, and uh, Jesus' you know, brothers and mother and father, I can't imagine what they were you know, what they had to go through and what they had to endure. It's like, what the heck is our brother doing? They're now just at, now we're outcasts in our own town, you know, because of him. That's how I see it, right? So so now what does Mary have to do? Well, my God, I can imagine that, you know, every time she goes out into the marketplace or she goes out and does the things that she needs to do, she's just being looked at like she's the crazy lady because She's with this guy that just is talking about this new weird stuff. And I don't think that that lasted very long. I think that they ended up saying, well, you know what, we need to move. Because we're, well, yeah. t- we're, we're, being, we're being thrown out of town. Maybe she had to have a come-to-Jesus meeting with him. Um, yeah, she goes, hey, you know, what are you doing to us? You know, this is really, you know, <laughs> one, of, one of two things are happening here, you know. So, and then, you know, I think Jesus was really adamant about, you know, and he had to put his foot down. So he says, look, I'm going to well, do I, this, so you can come with me or not. I think she 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 believed as well. I think he, he was able to sway her so that, or open her mind any way you want to put it, that that she understood his his plight, his message, his ministry. and And I believe she knew, as did he, that that you know he was going to his death that that it was going to end yeah. in his death um but but after john the baptist was killed, beheaded um you know he had to sit back and say cuz some of john the baptist's um disciples came and and joined in with jesus um he had to make sure that that his death was not as flightful as John the Baptist was. I mean, to lose your head because somebody did a, an exotic dance is, does not seem to be the kind of message you want to leave for humanity. So, no, so he made so that, sure... No, that, that plays into, I think, that, yeah, I, this idea that you're bringing up plays into his, uh, the final days of his life. And so Jesus had to make a very quick decision, and that is, do I side with with um, John's disciples and trying to go after, you know, and protest and um, do whatever you need to do to kind of point the finger at this injustice? Or do I go off and conduct my ministry with the message of the Father that's new and try and just put that aside? So I th- and Jesus had to, because if you, if you started going down that trail, 
of defending John, his message never would have been a, um, it would have been a completely different message. Right. Right. So that's that. Now and then now we go back to Mary and I agree with you. There was something about Mary that she knew that what Jesus was talking about, she understood and she got it. Oh yeah. So she was a very I think she was a very unique and capable of woman. And I think that she and and Jesus just had a great time together. Probably because she was just as sharp as he he was, and she was probably just as determined as he was. I just think that you know when it comes to family life, if you have a child, a child, you know you can't be running around, you know, always being threatened. No. With your life, but she, right? So you have to kind of put a, your foot down somewhere. And and according to history, or or according to some history, she did continue his ministry. So. Yes. Um, and then, then you get into the the other stories that that he after he re- resurrected, that he continued his misery in his ministry in India, which is kind of fascinating. And they called him Esau there. So yes. you know, I, I that that story to me is fascinating. Though though I know we we didn't go into it, but but your book stops just short of the crucifixion. Um, well, I, I tried to get, so I actually had chapter 12 and I, I dealt with the idea of resurrection Uh and I stopped and I thought, okay, now wait a second here. This is a little bit out of what it is that I was attempting to accomplish. And what I was attempting to accomplish was to take Jesus's words and try as best as I can understand his personality and mm-hmm. his motive and his inspirations. When it comes to his death, I stopped for three months on this project because I didn't have that story. I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And it didn't come to me. And it, it, Finally, I just went, okay, what does, the, what does Jesus Jesus's death mean to the Christians? Okay, well we know that story, yeah. but it came to me. The light bulb came on when I said, "What did Jesus's death mean to Jesus?" Okay, now mm-hmm. I have grounds to understand this impulse, and I really had to dig deep into it. But there was what I had to do was look at his words. I kept having to go back and say, "What are his words?" His words are telling me this. They're telling me this, 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 and this, right? A, B, C, and D. When you get to a particular spot in his life, they're no longer his words. They're somebody else's words that have been put into his mouth. Uh And that's where I had to come to an end to this particular story. Because at this point, all I'm trying to do is piece back his motive and his life and his setting and what was going on so that I can get a better picture of him and that and I can present a new portrait of him. The rest, on the back end, you know, there's a certain point in which there's a back end to the story, and I don't know what that story is because it's no longer Jesus' words. Now, maybe Jesus came back in a way that he was like a ghost or he was a... Um, you know, uh, you know, an entity, you know, and he's now speaking through people and his some of his disciples were channelers or maybe he came back and there was the images of him. I, I, 
I, I, just so you know, part of the reason why I wrote this book has to do with what happened to me as a, ch- as a, as a young man. And when I was 21, I had the first of my images or visions of Jesus. And then a week or so later, I had my second vision. And then a week or so later after that, I had a third vision. And it was from that that I ended up involved in Christianity. And that kind of launched me into this entire spiritual odyssey. So when I was writing the... Um, the 12th chapter, it was dealing with resurrection. And I have had personal experience, well, I've had visionary experiences in some way. They were very, very real. It was almost like real as Jesus walking through a wall, and there he is in front of me. Well, mm-hmm. I have had that experience. I know what that experience is like. Would that have been the similar type of experience that they would have known or they would have experienced? And all I could say is, my experience would say yes to that experience back then. But the story was trying to understand Jesus in his context with his words and his personality and to understand his spiritual odyssey and his hero's journey and why he pushed, quote, the boulder of goodness forward. So Mm -hmm. the rest is speculation. As far as I was concerned, the rest is speculation. So, however, because I had my own experiences and my own visions, I would say that there's some truth to some resurrection vision that others were experiencing. Okay. Just briefly, if you can, because we're running out of time, you go into the Last Supper a little bit, too. Yes, I do. So, this is, this is where, like, kind of the rubber hits the road, and that is... Jesus now understands that he has put himself in a situation where he is going to be arrested. At least we think that, right? Because uh, the writers say that Jesus went to his usual place, which was the Garden of Gethsemane. I wonder why that was so usual. I mean, how often did he go to Jerusalem with his disciples that made that so, such a prominent place to go? Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, here's Judas He's leaving the scene. He's leaving the the meal, the festival, so to speak, the Last Supper, and he's running off to go betray Jesus. And he's going to now bring back the entire group of uh, uh, temple priests or the the the, uh, the guards, uh, mm-hmm. the police, so to speak, of the temple. And they're going to, you know, and he's taking him to the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, the question is, is how did Judas know Jesus was going there? I don't know. But anyway, um, <laughs> it gets, it gets, you know, it, to me it gets kind of funny because I'm trying to understand uh, the sequence of, excuse me, the sequences of events. And that just seemed odd to me. But what doesn't seem odd to me is that Jesus recognized that, there, that his days were limited. And that he probably wasn't going to be with his friends and the people that he had been spending all this time with. And that his, you know, he wasn't going to be seeing his family either. Or So when mm-hmm. he gets to the big moment, <clears throat> the first thing that he recognizes is that he tells people to remember him. Yeah. And you have to ask yourself, why is he saying, remember me? What is it that they... What did he want them to remember? 
And again, we kind of go back to the end of the story, of his story with his crucifixion, and there's no one there. So, or very few people there. So now all of a sudden, if you ask yourself, God, I, I went and did all of this work for all you people, and boy, you didn't have, you, you couldn't even come and spend time with me, you know, at the last moments. So for him to ask them to remember him, I think is a really important issue. And that is don't forget what I have done for you. Don't forget what I have told you. Don't forget what I have shown you, taught you, encouraged you, healed, right? All of those things. Don't forget any of that. And yeah, at so, that moment, none of, them, none of them know he's going to be arrested and die. Right, and so he has some sense that that's going to happen, and I think he's Uh just kind of pleading with them, hey, don't make my death, don't make my life in vain by not carrying on what it is that I shared with you because I gave everything. Now, Uh the reason why I say this is that the the accounts at the end of Jesus' story and even in the first chapter, I think, of the book of Acts or the, you know, the early chapters of the book of Acts, the disciples, all of them, with the exception of some of the women, seem to all have gone home to the Galilee, and they're fishing. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, it's like, there it is. They went back to their old ways, and they kind of, in a sense, have forgotten them. So now I'm trying to think through this story, and I'm trying to understand what the mechanics of this would have been. So if I were Mary Magdalene and I was, you know, helping support this ministry or even Jesus' mother, who were, you know, part of the Women of Means, and they're looking around at these men, they're going, now, wait a minute, Um, my husband and my son just died, and you guys got the most amount of information and benefited the most from his life. So what are you going to do? Are you just going to sit back and go fish like as if this nothing had happened? Or are you going to actually do something about it? And I kind of can see that these, these strong-willed women really motivated and pissed these guys off, saying, get out there and go do something. <laughs> I can't imagine they're just saying, oh, that's okay, don't worry about it. It's no big deal anyway. You know, yeah, it's like, hey, we'll, wait, we'll wait we, 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 sorry, say that again? Can it? going to say, well, we'll wait for the next Messiah and do it again. Um, right. It's like, no, you're it. <laughs> Tag, you're yeah. it. Go out there and tell everybody what you saw and what you heard and what he did. Yeah, no, it was, it's an amazing story. And, and you've told it beautifully. You, you absolutely have. Um, Thank you. I have, I have to ask, what's the next book? Well, I am um, hemming and hawing. I have a lot of material on Thomas. I have a lot of material on Paul. Um, I'm wanting. I'm wondering if the um, if this message is an important message, and whether or not I should continue down this road. I also have a lot of insights uh, and experiences that are essentially considered not Christian, so to speak, that I would also like to address and explore. Mm-hmm. I've written three scripts. Um, I'm hoping to get, you know, one of those off. I have a, uh, I also have the, I have a very interesting 
way that I want to present the the kind of the content and the the wisdom both of the Gnostics and from the Christian mystics and I think a workshop on um, this this kind of ancient wisdom on how you reconnect to the divine is actually very uh-huh. important and I would like to you know write material on that and also uh, have workshops on that so there's a lot that I have going and I have a lot of information and I want to kind of keep the ball rolling but um, you know which uh, where I, I put uh, the final kind of uh, story is still up in the air. I'm really spending a lot of time still promoting my book and talking about my book and um, sharing the wisdom from, with this book. And so it's slowly kind of happening, but I can tell you that I, I feel like I always have to go back to the creative process and, and deal with um, a book or a script or a workshop, <laughs> you know, in that level. I have to. It's just part of who I am. And that's important to me as well. So there's well, the next I, book. If, yeah, I, if I know the creative process, and I pretty much do, it'll it'll reveal itself when it's ready, not when yes. you are, but when it's ready. And uh, that's how this then. book came about. You know, it's like yeah. I wasn't looking to write this book, but it's it just all of a sudden it's just I'm really thinking pretty hard about it, and then I start looking into it, and then I got really captivated by trying to understand. The, the the missing parts and the missing pieces and put all of these pieces back together like it was a puzzle and then once I did I went oh my god now what am I going to do with all this information and it was like well you have to write about it so yeah <laughs> then the question was well how are you going to write about it and then it took a it took I think about three or four or five days uh, before I start before I came to the realization that what if I told it is it in an interview. And it mm-hmm. kind of goes back to Plato's dialogues, where you have dialogue between people with different ideas, but they're sharing the ideas through conversation and intimacy through a conversation. And that's the way the book kind of came about. Well, it, it makes for a very easy read and, and informative for sure. We're down to our last couple couple minutes here. Um, the book is interviewing Jesus the man and your website is davidcollis.com and the book can be gotten on Amazon um i'm going to have to have you back cuz we just didn't tough to you know touch into half the material that i wanted to but we but but um i'd rather these shows had a life of their own than script them so right uh, i do appre- i appreciate your letting it kind of be a uh, um, kind of a free flow, which I'm more comfortable with. Well, I enjoyed the spontaneity of it, and it's kind of a little bit like a, a flowing river. You don't necessarily know where it's going, but it had its own little eddies. So I liked that quite a bit. So I know that I tried to prepare for all of these, and then I found out that every interview that I've had so far, um, the interviewer wants to know material that I have not prepared for because that's important to them. And I go, oh, my God, you know, what I thought was important, they're not. And so it kind of goes off in these different um, territories and directions, which I find the most fascinating because I've been interested in this material for so long that I can talk about a lot of different things about it. So it's not necessarily about what it is that I've prepared for. It's about something that's kind of ingrained in me at this point. And so I just Absolutely. wanted to be able to share it. And you were able to pull it out of me, and I just love it. 
So, you know, thank you for <laughs> well, all, thank you for all those questions. Well, thank you so very much for for being here tonight. We got just a couple more seconds. I I want to um, thank you so much. I want to invite you back again because we've just scraped the surface, and we'll see if we can't um, highlight this book a little bit more for you in in the future. Well, that'd be great. I look forward to it. Because there is, there's a lot of material here. There's a lot of material. There is, and and I encourage everybody to get the book. It's a fabulous book. So, um, for me and uh, David, um, good night, everybody, and thanks for listening. Good night, David. Good night, and thank you very much for having me on your show, Barbara. My pleasure.